Welcome again, Hope. Isn't it just fun to be able to come to church and have it be 80 or going to be 80? That's just, I think, the way God intended. Another thing which feels very exciting is, um, I, I mean, this is about the only time a year you can be a Bears fan is right after the draft. Actually, not even normally after the draft. But this year, as a Buckeye fan and as a Bears fan, admittedly a Bears fan who is about to give up, I wholeheartedly am excited about Justin Fields. So maybe that'll be the last time I'm excited. Who knows once they start playing football, but we're at least glad to have some excitement in two different ways this week. So, well, we're going to look at God's word here. I'm going to read an extended passage from Acts chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through the end of 41. And Acts 13 is uh, the, Paul's first missionary journey, and it's also the first of what will be seven recorded sermons by Paul in the, book of, in the rest of the book of Acts. He has four sermons that are directed primarily towards Jews, and then three that are going towards Jew and Gentile or Gentile audiences. And so this is the first of his speeches. And so listen as I read, starting in verse 13 through 41, and then we'll pray and we'll spend some time in God's word. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about, about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me is one, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie." Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed." And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him to Gal- from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But when, when he whom God raised up did not see corruption... Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which reveals to us truth about your son. And even as we think about this sermon that was preached so many years ago in a synagogue, Father, we thank you that you still speak truth. We thank you that we can see Jesus and we can know that we are everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Father, we thank you that you did not just tell us, get better or do more. You sent to us your son. And so, Father, we pray that your son would be very clearly seen this morning. Pray that our hearts and our minds would be set on him for your glory, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about 20 years ago, Jen and I spent uh, uh, about a week with the church planting group Frontiers out in Mesa, Arizona. And we both remember to this day what their president at the time, Bob Blinko, said in relation to church planting. And this group in particular is focused on church planting in the Muslim world. He said this, he said, expectations are your enemy, but flexibility is your friend. Expectations are your enemy. But flexibility is your friend. Jen and I have repeated that phrase more times than we can count in so many different situations. In how we approach marriage, in how we work with teams, in our parenting. Expectations are our enemy, but flexibility is our friend. And as I read Acts chapter 13 and thought about Paul's first missionary journey, that phrase came to mind again because of the pattern that we're going to see in Paul's very first journey here and how it should be setting our expectations regarding church planting today. So so my whole aim here this morning is that Acts chapter 13 adjusts our expectations according to what God wants us to anticipate when we share the gospel personally, and when we seek to plant churches, seek to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. So I just want to structure our time around five things we should expect as a church who wants to plant churches. 
Five things we should expect as a church that wants to plant churches. And here's the first one. We should expect that God will raise up leaders. We should expect that God will raise up leaders. You know, one of the great joys uh, of being involved with church planting over these years has been seeing how God is intentionally raising up people to help plant the church. You know, in one respect, God provides just the right people at just the right time who might only be involved for just a little while. You know, I remember actually when we were beginning Hope Fellowship, someone said to me, you know, at the beginning of a church plant, God's going to send people and they will ser- they'll be like scaffolding in the construction of a building. They're essential to the building. You, you have to have scaffolding to build a building. But they'll only be with you for a little while. You know, that's been the case, especially, especially living in such a transient area where people come and go in the Chicagoland area. But here in Acts chapter 11, if you remember back, we're told in Antioch, that's the first place that believers were first called Christians. And Barnabas and Saul, they were in the church in Antioch and they were teaching for a year. And they were telling Jews and Gentiles about Jesus. So now, if you look back at chapter 13, verse 1, look at what, what we learn about the leaders in Antioch. Now, there were some in Antioch, at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look, this, this is a stacked, multicultural, multinational team right here. And here it is, it's Barnabas, who we've already met back in Acts chapter 4, where he sold a field and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He was called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. There's Simeon, who's called Niger or Black. There's a man from Cyrene, Menaean, and Saul. You know, Menaean, it's interesting that he, they just put this phrase in there. He'd been a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who Herod is the one, same one that was mentioned during the life of Jesus. And so just from this list of people of who is leading in the church in Antioch, we're shown that in a very short time, the church has grown to be permeated with influ- into influential circles, Herod the Tetrarch, a friend of his, multinational, multicultural. It's a church whose whole existence could be traced right back to the scattering of the church from Saul himself, And so God God has been using this church in Antioch to grow and to teach. They've been even helping out the saints back in Jerusalem. So this group of leaders here in Antioch, they worship and they fast, and it tells us they lay their hands by the Holy Spirit on Paul and Barnabas, and they're sent out. And what we notice is there's a calling on these two men's lives. And what we also notice is likely they're sending out two of their best. They're not kind of just saying, well, you know, who we got to spare, who's not really that good. Okay, we'll send you. It's Paul. It's Barnabas. And, and here they go, and they lay hands on them. They set sail. They go from, Ante- from the coast, Seleucia, which is on the coast. They set sail. They go over to Cyprus, which is an island just south of modern-day Turkey. And as they go into Cyprus, we're not told really what happens as they make their way through the island, but as they make their way through the island of uh, Cyprus... They, they have some things happen there, and they come and they meet with an influential leader at the end. So they're preaching the gospel, 
They have, it's, it's interesting, you might have picked up there that Mark was with them. Also, uh, Mark, who would be the one who would write um, the gospel of Mark, he, he abandons them back in Jerusalem, actually, and he goes back to Jerusalem, which is going to become a point of contention as we continue forward. But, but what we just need to see here, and the first thing we should expect is, the early, early church experienced, we should expect that God's going to raise up leaders, and he's going to raise up people to be sent out. So that's the first thing. The second thing we should be expecting in, from looking at Acts chapter 13 is we should expect that there will be opposition to the gospel. We should expect that there will be opposition to the gospel. You know, just by saying, you know, we should expect opposition, it, it might be kind of like standing up at a wedding and saying to the bride and groom, well, you can expect to have conflict in your marriage. I mean, it's just, maybe it's true. It certainly, all of us are sinners and we marry other sinners and we go through times when we're having to grow in our marriages. But do you really want to point that out at the beginning? You know, do you really want to point out that, hey, look, the gospel is going to go forward, but there's going to be opposition? Well, isn't that demotivating? Here's why I don't think it's demotivating to just expect opposition from the gospel. I think what it does is when we recognize there'll be opposition is we're starting to see that we should have God-centered expectations, not man-centered expectations. We should have God-centered expectations that rely on an all-powerful God, not on our own efforts, not on our own talents, not on our own resources. Look, Barnabas might have been a great encourager, and clearly Paul understands the Old Testament, but if they relied on their own power, that mission, that journey was doomed to fail. So there are roadblocks. Like if you, if you just think, you know, like I think what's interesting is when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, Saul who would later also is called Paul, when he's converted and he goes to Damascus, they say, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul might be the only person in history who truly knew what was coming. But for most of us, if we knew what was out there on the horizon, all the opposition that we might face when we share the gospel, all the opposition that might happen when we seek to plant a church, when we seek to see the gospel go forward into all nations, we might quit even before we begin. But, but listen to what Paul says about the suffering that he went through in Corinth. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Look, only God can overcome the obstacles that are going to threaten the very existence of the church. You know, a good friend of mine, David Sunday, likes to talk about the church and says, the church feels so often like a very delicate spider web. A gust of wind could blow it away. But yet... God overcomes obstacles that threaten the very existence of the church. We can even personalize that, and we can say, only God can overcome the obstacles that we ourselves are facing today. Now, if you look at, at Acts chapter 13, it doesn't take long for opposition to happen with Paul and Barnabas. As they make their way through Cyprus, they finally come to the, the end of Cyprus, they come and they encounter a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. Now look at verse 7. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulos, 
a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Ilimus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So first, a couple of things we should just see here. This man is named a false prophet. He's also called a magician. And by magician, it means that he was likely the court astrologer for this influential Roman leader. He, and this Roman leader, he's the, the, represent, the representative, the proconsul. So when Paul starts, starts speaking about Jesus, this false prophet, it's really a threat to this man's livelihood that he's seeking to, and so he's seeking to turn the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, away from the faith. But it's, so it's important to remember, here, here's what we remember. Paul has some of his strongest words in the New Testament for false teachers or false prophets. And, and false teachers and false prophets, they, they do just that. They point people away from the truth. They, they focus on a warped interpretation, or they make up lies, or they twist. Look at, look at verse 10. Look at how Paul describes him. You son of the devil... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The son of the devil, enemy, full of deceit, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. How do you really feel, Paul? Look, false teachers, they take what is plain and they intentionally make it confusing for selfish gain. Now, there might be an immature preacher, and they might get their words mixed up, and they, or they might need to be more clear, or they might not be as effective as teaching the Word, but false teachers, that's the difference between an immature teacher and a false teacher, a false teacher intentionally twists or hides what's to promote their own agenda. Remember what the, the devil, he's the father of lies. He wants to point people towards anything but Jesus. Look at the false teacher. Look at the world. Look what's going on. Look how bad Paul is. All these different tactics. He might downplay the the servant. He might downplay the word that's being preached. All these ways, the devil does not want people to look at Jesus. To be an enemy of righteousness would be one who rejoices in wrongdoing. So we could even say today, look, be wary of people that point consistently to themselves rather than directing our eyes towards Jesus. We want to see Jesus clearly. That's not the end of the opposition, as you know, as, especially as we go through the rest of the book of Acts. But look down at verse 45 here in chapter 13. When they travel to Pisidia, it's an area on the coast of southern, what is modern southern-day Turkey near Antalya today. It says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. So look, we learn about their motive. They're jealous. They're contradicting what's being spoken by Paul. So they're contradicting the word of God. And they're also speaking poorly about Paul himself, reviling him. And so their motive in reviling Paul is jealousy. Look, they're they're not interested in being teachers of the law so that people follow after the ways of God. Their motives are clear. They're interested in people looking at themselves. 
But, but if you notice, as we continue on there, it's not just the Jews. We're told that there were influential women of high standing and men, and they sought to drive out Paul as well and persecute them. So we should expect opposition. And opposition sometimes comes because of selfish motives and is often directed at the messenger and the message. Look, you know, think about it this way. And I'm sure this has been the case for you probably. When you've shared the gospel with somebody, um, there is maybe a recognition early on as you start talking about Jesus, they recognize there's going to be a call to repent on the way I'm living. They, they start to understand, you know, this might be true, but my life is completely contrary to this. And, and so pride begins to rise up. Sometimes it might be because of jealous reasons. Sometimes pride might look like just wanting to protect self. They don't want to be confronted with the truth. They want to rather cling to their lies and kind of under their safety blanket. And the warning that we have today that we must be careful of is that we want to be careful that we just don't see people drawing a crowd for selfish purposes. Look, who doesn't want to be popular? But the desire for popularity is a hole that will never be filled up. It will keep getting deeper and deeper. And so there will be opposition. It will come from false teachers. It can be directed towards people and towards the message. It can be for prideful reasons. People can just be seeking to puff their own, their own selves up. But this really leads us to the next thing that we should expect as a church as we seek to send out church planters. Third, we should expect that the word will be central for, to the advance of the gospel. We should expect that the word will be central to the advance of the gospel. So look back at verse 11. We're just going to kind of keep going back and forth over this chapter here together. Look back at verse 11. And now, this is Paul pronouncing judgment on the false teacher or the false prophet Bar-Jesus. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So God brings judgment to bear by striking this man blind, very similar to how God did with Paul himself earlier. But notice the, really, the ne- very next verse, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, what stood out to me there and what should stand out to us there is, look, this is, this is pretty, this is just not normal, right? Paul pronounces judgment. A man is immediately struck blind. So we would all be paying attention if that happened right in front of us. But if you notice, what's emphasized isn't that he was, struck, he was just amazed at that sign that took place. Signs are given when the gospel is advanced into new areas in order for people to see the truth of the gospel. But notice what it said. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So he was a man of intelligence. We learned about him. He's listening. This bar Jesus is seeking to distract him. This sign is done. And what is he astonished at? He's astonished at what he's hearing from the word. We should expect the word is central to the advance of the gospel. Now, like we said earlier, the bulk of chapter 13 is a description of what Paul is preaching. And he's preaching in this synagogue after being invited to speak by the, and after the prophets and the law are read. 
And, and if you notice there, as I read, Paul stands up and he gives a history of how God worked in Israel. But he really just kind of skims over the first 450 years or so. And then he begins to zone in and focus on King David and the prophets. And as he does, he's starting to point them to the promise that needs to be at the center of attention. So look at verse 22. This is God God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So God brings forth a king after his own heart. After 40 years of Saul, a man that was the people's choice, 40 years reigning, not a good king, he raises up David, a man after his own heart. Not a perfect man, as we know, but a man after his own heart. And, but it's not the King David that will be the focus for eternity. It's one who will come after him the Savior that's promised and delivered in Jesus. Now look down at verse 26. He goes on, and he intentionally calls them the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to those who have been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Look, so here's Jesus, the king of the Jews, the rightful king of the Jews. He's sent to the Jewish nation. But what's happened, every, even though every week in the synagogues there would have been the prophet reading, they completely missed the, what the prophets were pointing to. The prophets were pointing to Jesus. You know, specifically here, just from the allusions in Acts chapter 13, they missed Isaiah who spoke of this servant who would come not only a servant who would suffer like we say in, see in Isaiah 53, but there is a, a servant who will come, Isaiah 55, who will be a light to the Gentiles, a light to all peoples. This king is not just king over the Jewish nation. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. And he will rule over all the earth. And so all the earth needs to hear about him. But they missed, even though they heard the prophets week after week, They missed the servant who would suffer. You know, maybe this is irreverent, but it's almost like that show, Undercover Boss, where the owner of the company comes to the business, employees don't recognize him. I never understand how they don't recognize this guy because they always have the worst toupees and like the worst like uh, kind of glued on mustaches. But but supposedly none of them recognize him. And as they're there in the business that they started and have their, their livelihoods wrapped up in, All sorts of dysfunction is uncovered when the owner sees how the company's really being run. Look, the prophets very plainly and very clearly pointed to Jesus. But the Jewish leaders were so blind, they actually fulfilled the prophets themselves by condemning Jesus. Paul points out that Jesus was innocent, but they asked Pilate to have him executed, but that God raised him from the dead. And so as Paul's preaching here, what we notice is he's showing us that the whole Bible points to Jesus. He he quotes the Old Testament that points to Jesus. He quotes the prophets. He's showing from the Psalms how Jesus must be the center of attention. And so what we have to remember is, what we should expect as we seek to be a church that plants churches, 
is, is not simply that we're called to be a church that gathers people. The, the point of a church being planted, the point of a church, generally speaking, isn't just to gather a crowd. It's not to just gather a crowd to do kind of churchy things or religious things. At its core, the church, the local church, is a mission outpost where the word of God is preached so that people can hear and believe. You know, the word points to Jesus, and so we have to point to Jesus too. The word shows how all scripture points to Jesus, and so we want to show from all the counsel of God how God's word points clearly to him. And so like we began here this morning in Isaiah 55, there is this call, come all who are without money, come buy and eat. Without price, come to the waters and receive and drink from the living water. That is what we have to be focused on as a church, is calling all of us, not just people who have not yet believed, but all of us to find our joy and our satisfaction in Jesus himself. So we have to go with the expectation, the word has to be at the center of the church. Which really leads us to the fourth thing that we should expect when we plant churches. We should expect some will have an eager, joyful response. We should expect some will have an eager, joyful response. You know, Dane Ortland said recently, when the gospel was preached in Acts, I love how he said that. He said, there, was, there were riots or there was revival, but no one was yawning. Like, isn't that a great quote? There were riots where Paul preached. There was revival where Paul preached, but nobody was yawning. You know, we should expect a response when we preach the word. You know, personally, I've, I've had all sorts of responses. I've, I've been laughed at when I was in college. When we lived in Turkey, I was arrested and we were, had a phone call that was threatening our lives. The response, but it's not always negative. And so we shouldn't be surprised when somebody opposes the message like we saw. We should expect there will be opposition. But I don't think that we should just be thinking when we seek to pray and preach the gospel and proclaim Christ to those who don't know him, well nobody's going to believe this, or it's just all going to be opposition. I think we need to go in and we need to be full of faith and we need to be essentially saying, I, when I heard the gospel, that was the best news I'd ever heard. And I know that there will be some, when I preach the gospel and when we proclaim the gospel and we tell friends over coffee the gospel, they are going to feel the same way I did and they're going to see it and they're going to believe. Because we should expect amazing works from God because God is the one who brings the spiritually dead to life. He's the one who breathes life into a valley of dry bones and they come to life. You know, I, and just even our expectations that summer is going to have an eager, joyful response, we should just remember, some, to temper our expectations on the timing of that. You know, I remember one friend that I met in the Apple store in Woodfield he, he heard I was a pastor, he worked at the Apple store, and, and he wanted to talk to me. And so we spent weeks, um, months actually, reading the Bible together. I'd go on his breaks and we'd sit down and we'd read the Bible together. And then he drifted away. And I heard kind of from him, he'd call me every once in a while, he was going through heroin addiction, uh, and he'd surface just every once in a while. And I, I got to the point where a few years ago I wondered, is, is he still alive? I, what's even happened to him? You know, just a... Two months ago, I got a text from him, and he, he told me he'd become a believer in Christ. 
and he's still struggling, he's st- but he's working through it, and he's seeking to be a follower of Jesus. Look, that was a response to the word. We should expect responses. But if I would have th- been thinking 15 years ago, well, here I'm expecting this response. I- I've proclaimed the gospel. We've shown it. it- where- God, why didn't you work? I should expect this in faith. Why aren't you working? Little could I know the path that he was going to go on for those 15 years. We should expect a response. We should expect joyful responses. But it doesn't always mean that the response is immediate. You know, I think that as parents, my mom, when I was rebelling against God very hard in my high school years, my mom regularly was praying for me. She didn't give up. And so parents, don't give up. You might have a wayward adult child. You might have a son or a daughter that you just wonder, where are they? Will they ever believe? Keep talking about Jesus. Keep pointing them to Jesus and trust God is going to work in their heart in his timing. Look at verse 42. Here's some more responses that we see. Verse 42, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So they're eager. They're begging him. Next verse, verse 43, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So people were opposing him, but people were following him. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So there's a gathered crowd, you know, close to probably 10,000 people in that city. Almost the whole city comes out, and what do they want? They want to hear the word of the Lord. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, so those who were not Jewish, when they heard this Jewish background believer in Christ preaching about Jesus and that the way was open to everyone, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Isn't that interesting what they glorify? The word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They were rejoicing. They were glorifying. And and notice the God-centered nature of salvation. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? God. Why can we be bold with the gospel Because we can expect God is at work in people's hearts in ways that we had no idea. This man that was 15 years coming to know Jesus, somebody else told him about Jesus along the way. God had worked in him, and it was God's work, and God knew exactly where his people were that were going to be preaching to him the gospel. And so we can be bold, and we can say, essentially, God, you have many people in this city. We don't know who they are, but we can be bold with the gospel, and you have appointed some to believe. All those who are appointed to eternal life believed. So in conclusion this morning, here's the last thing we should expect as we seek to be a church planting church. We should expect the unexpected. We should expect the unexpected. Look, that whole quote, um, expectations are your enemy, flexibility is your friend, is built on the fact that how do we respond when the unexpected thing happens? Oftentimes we freak out, right? I didn't expect to have to be doing a car repair this month. How in the world are we going to pay for a new water heater? What's going on? And we just kind of, all these unexpected things that can happen in our life, both big things and little things. So, so as we're seeking to be a church that plants churches, we should expect the unexpected. Like if you just notice just the kind of trajectory of this whole chapter, they start in Cyprus 
they have a man who is influential, the Roman representative, he comes to know Jesus in a dramatic way. Then they go across the, the, the body of water there, the Mediterranean, and they get to southern Turkey. They begin to preach the gospel, and it's the influential people that are persecuting them. So in one place, the influential people become a Christian, and the other place, they oppose them. So, look, if we're, if we're tempted, look, I, I spent the first 10 years of marriage trying to look at what the formula to, uh, for marriage was. And I realized th- there is no formula. Like, okay, if I do this, she says this. If I, how do we do this? And, and so we just, just, that's just marriage. When we think about the gospel going forward, we have to remember. God is going to work in unexpected ways. We should expect the unexpected. We should expect that God is going to glorify himself in his way, in his choosing. Because if you think about your own life, have things turned out exactly as you expected? In the exact way that you thought they would play out? But yet we can say, God is at work. We should expect that he will call and send out his servants. We should expect that the gospel will be opposed, but we should expect that the word, when it's preached, will have a joyful response. And so we can go out with great joy and be bold. We're on this unexpected journey of watching God work in unexpected and glorious ways. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for grace. Thank you for working in us in unexpected ways. Every single person here, if we're a believer in Christ, we can say there was a moment when the unexpected showed up in our lives. When we woke one morning, we didn't expect to have eternal life by the end of the day. When you shaped us, molded us, and cared for us by the power of your Holy Spirit and brought growth and life, Father, I pray that as we, as a body of Christ here, pray for the gospel to advance in the Chicagoland region and beyond, Lord, we pray that you would do these things, that we would expect with faith-filled hearts that you will use us as a church and individuals for the gospel to go forward. We pray this faith-filled in Jesus' name. Amen.